Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, February 20th, 2018, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. We have two upcoming Starseed Quests to Arkansas. The first one is for Spring Equinox, which is Athena's birthday, and that's March 16th through the 19th, and we do have three spots left for March, but the doors will be closing soon. For the Pleiadian Lineup Quest, it's May 18th through the 21st, and all you need to have is at least one galactic star marking on your astrological chart, which is 25, 26, or 27 degrees of any sign. This is a soul group reunion in the crystal capital of the world designed to enable a catalyst for starseed empowerment to higher frequencies. We've redesigned this event to be much more affordable than the previous gatherings, so if this sounds like what you've been looking for, just write to crystals, and that is plural, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-S, at starseedhotline.com for more details. Well, we are happy to welcome Tricia McCannon back to the show. She was with us last month, and we asked her to come back on to talk about another of her books, Jesus, the Lost 30 Years and the Ancient Mystery Religions. For the past two decades, she's been a headliner at conferences around the world, speaking on a variety of subjects as diverse as angels and extraterrestrials, Atlantis, the return of the divine feminine, the new earth, and the quest for the philosopher's stone. In everything she does, she remains committed to the awakening of the planet and a vision for world unity. You can check out her website at Trisha McCannon Speaks, and Trisha is T-R-I-C-I-A, McCannon, M-C. C-A-N-N-O-N, speaks, S-P-E-A-K-S, dot com. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank Kathy for hosting the switchboard tonight for those who may have a question or comment for our guest. And just so you know, Tricia will not be doing personal readings tonight. We have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds, thanks to Tammy's dedication and help with our forum. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk. And if you'd like to show your support of our program, please click follow on our page here at Blog Talk, and you'll get our weekly show notice. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 888-881-0881. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings in your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. For those who need healing of any kind, whether it's emotional, physical, or spiritual, for yourself or your pets, Tammy's powerful remote sessions will make a difference. And if you have a birthday coming up, don't miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And please remember, if you want a stage 2 interpretation of that chart, you're going to need to order it at least two or three months ahead of time because we do have a waiting list. So first this evening... 
I'm going to uh, introduce Anastasia with the Starseed News. Hi, Anastasia. Well, good evening, Ariel. It's great to be with you. Hello, everybody. Lots of news, lots happening. So I'll just get right into it. Right now, we're exiting the solar wind stream. Uh, that was uh, what what happened earlier, the solar wind stream that sparked a G1-class storm uh, just yesterday. Intermittent polar auroras will continue for the next day or so, but the solar wind is declining back to its nominal levels. As you know, the sun has been pretty quiet, except for last week when that sudden spot showed up and gave us some storms, and now it's going back down to quiet level. Well, tonight you're going to be able to see a small piece of the far side of the moon. Uh, Yeah, you heard that right. Right. Tonight's waxing crescent moon shifts a tiny portion of the moon's far side toward Earth. Now, how is that possible? It's common knowledge that our moon has a near side and a far side. One half of the moon always faces Earth and the other half points away. I always assumed, did you folks, that we can only see 50% of the moon from the Earth? Well, I was wrong. Because although we can see only about 50% of the moon at any one time, I discovered through EarthSky.com that careful moon watchers can view up to 59% of the lunar surface if they watch the moon for extended periods. And tonight is the uh, time of the month when the far side of the moon, about, as I understand it, about 9% of it will be visible from Earth because uh, there is a slight north-south rocking and east-west wobbling of the moon known as lunar libration. So actually, I was once told when I was very young that no one can see the dark side of the moon, and I accepted that forever and ever, and now, lo and behold... I am an older person, and I learned something new, that yes, we do get to see a small portion of the far side of the moon. Depending on the period of the time of the month, it always reveals a little bit of itself if you know where to look and when to look. So tonight's the night. When you go look at the moon, you'll see a sliver. Look at the west side, the west edge of the moon. That is the far side of the moon, about 9% of it, a little sliver of that outside edge. I think that's absolutely fascinating. Gee whiz, I never knew that. I'll bet a lot of you didn't either. I mean, that's just amazing. Maybe some of you did. You're probably smarter than me, but there it is. (laughs) And also, (laughs) there is a a, a rumor spreading on the Internet that there will be a green moon on April 20th. Is that true? Is the moon really going to turn green? I wish I had all the Startseed listeners in a big room. And I could see all your faces, see how many of you raised your hand saying you'd seen that on Facebook or somewhere else on the Internet. Yes, we're expecting a green moon on the 20th of April. Well, it's not true, according to EarthSky.com. They say that the April 20th green moon is a hoax and that the hoax has come back, that it shows up every year. They say the hoax started in 2016. And as they say with so many Internet hoaxes, it's returning every year. Now, this story claims that the moon will look green for the first time in 420 years on the 20th of April. And they say it's just not true. But however, according to this article, the joke is on the believers. Because this is going to blow your minds, guys. The date, 420, 
or April 20th, and combined with 420 years, you might just pick up on the fact that 420, 420, is a code word for marijuana, and that the date April 20th has special meaning to some as Weed Day. Is that weird or what? Now, this same meme began as a photograph, photograph on Facebook claiming that on May 29th, 2016, uh, May 20th, 2016, oh, this started in 2016. Way back in 2016, they claimed that May 29th of that year, the moon would appear green in the sky. That is carried forward last year to this year, where now they're saying it's April 20th. So it is some type of myth, joke, uh, started uh, that's related to marijuana. The code word for marijuana is 420. Weird. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> maybe some of every you, day. probably most of you don't know that. I'd never heard that before, but there it is. So, moon's not going to be green according to spaceweather.com. Okay. Well, Indonesia's Mount Sinabung has erupted and is towering an ash, cl- an ash cloud right now. Uh, or did, it's gone, now it quit. But it erupted yesterday morning. It said it sent this ash cloud more than 16,000 feet into the atmosphere. No one was injured or hurt by this. Now this uh, erupted on the Indonesian's island of Sumatra. It lasted for a mere 291 seconds. Now the volcanic ash fell on surrounding areas, and it really turned the, not- the day to night. I mean, it turned the day to night. Visibility was down to 16 feet. There's photographs on the Internet of this. Residents and visitors were told to avoid the area, obviously, and they were predicting rain for the area, which is a particular concern because, again, something else I didn't know, is that wet ash conducts electricity, and they're afraid that that will cause high-voltage circuits and transformers to short out and fail. There has been an aviation aviation uh, level alert, uh, level uh, red alert that has followed this eruption. It's uh, uh, telling airplanes to avoid the area. Now, after being dormant for 400 years, Mount Cinnabug uh, came to life in 2010, killed two people in that year. And since then, two other deadly eruptions have happened. And now it's erupting again. No injuries, though. Well, Yellowstone uh, has had some incidents, 200 quakes in only 10 days. And there's been a warning that underground magma is causing strain on the surface. That new swarm of earthquakes that's cropped up at the Yellowstone supervolcano has had more than 200 uh, timblers in the last 10 days alone. And according to experts with the USGS, the latest swarm began on February 8th in a region close to West Yellowstone, Montana. And it's been increasing dramatically in the days since. And perhaps you've all heard on mainstream news about that 7.2 magnitude that struck Mexico near the Pacific coast. That was on Friday. A 7.2 rocked central and southern Mexico. The tremors reportedly shook buildings across the country's capital. It hit the state of Oaxaca. I hope I said that right. And it has a few thousand people there. Uh, Tremors were felt as far as Mexico City. It didn't strike under Mexico City. No one was hurt, but alarms went off across the capital, and thousands of people flooded into the streets, which is exactly 
what happened yesterday. Uh, Mexico had another quake. Uh, it was felt in Mexico City. Alarms were sounded yet again. Now, Mexico City has a population of 9 million people, and residents in that city evacuated the houses and buildings in, responses to the, in response to the alarms. And that's happened only about 48 hours or so after the 7.2. So I'm sure that they're a bit tense in that part of the world right now. A little bit of earthquake activity. Uh, and there's been an earthquake swarm in Iceland. Um, an earthquake magnitude of 5.2 was detected at Grimsey Island just yesterday. Now, this powerful quake was felt in many parts of North Iceland, and it's following a swarm of over 800 earthquakes in the past four days. Wow. Wow. And uh, they say that the local people there are used to smaller earthquakes. You know, the swarms generally have small quakes, one point something, two point something. They're not all big. You know, they're small. Some of them are barely detectable. And the people that live there are pretty used to this. But they called uh, their authorities uh, yesterday morning because the earthquake was bad enough to shake the coffee out of their cups. So this was, uh, you know, made things rock and roll a little bit. Experts are calling this a deep volcanic-induced activity. But what's interesting about that is this is a region previously uncharted for volcanoes. So, And an earthquake mm. swarm also hit the Canary Islands. The Canary Island of La Palma hit by another flurry of earthquakes once again, prompting fears that the deadly volcano Cumbre Vieja could erupt. This is just four months after scientists recorded a swarm of more than 200, 200 uh, uh, temblers. Now, this Spanish archipelago was struck by up to 70 small quakes recorded between Monday and Wednesday last week, reaching, reaching a magnitude up to three point on the Richter scale. The Canary government has stepped in and called for an urgent meeting to take place to discuss why the quakes are happening again and what what might occur in the future. They say this is the latest to hit the Spanish islands. A lot of British uh, British holiday people go there. They go up, they go there for holiday, um, and it was struck by a flurry of earthquakes in October of last year. So the Canary Islands has been active now, going on six months perhaps. And in New Zealand, they have had a cyclone hit. Uh, the name of the cyclone is Gita. It uh, has, uh, hit Christchurch, New Zealand. An emergency has been declared. Um, they say that dozens of schools were shut down and roads closed as the storm made landfall. New Zealand's national airline has canceled flights in and out of the capital, and residents were told to expect floods and winds up to 90 miles per hour. And this, on this side of the world, we're going to enter spring pretty soon. Um, they're entering, uh, getting close to entering their autumn period there. Uniontown, Pennsylvania, experienced a rare February tornado with wind gusts up to 105 miles per hour. And this tornado tore a path of destruction through part of Uniontown last Thursday night. It ripped roofs from homes and businesses. It toppled trees and left de debris strewn in the streets. Now, they say that based on the tornado's path of damage and the circular path of the debris field, National Weather Service determined that it was an F1 tornado instead of straight-line winds. 
and it was the first time since 1950 that a tornado struck in the Pittsburgh region in February. And they say it's really unusual that the, that the tornado struck in an urban area. <clears throat> well, you know, they discovered something that I think is absolutely fascinating, you guys. This is going to make you think. Sit up in your chairs and listen. <laughs> the beginning ingredients for life was discovered in ancient alien salt crystals. Now, a team of United Kingdom-based researchers discovered the beginnings of life housed in extraterrestrial salt crystals that they collected from two ancient meteorites that date back to the formation of the solar system. Now, these are millimeter-sized sapphire and purple-hued crystals of water-bearing halite that came from the four-and-a-half-billion-year-old Monaghan and Zag meteorites which crashed to Earth in 1998. Now, at that time, in 1998, technology was not sufficiently advanced to reveal what has been recently discovered. And this recent discovery, according to the team's report, has found that crystals in these meteorites contain liquid water, organic chemical compounds containing a mixture of carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen, which, as you all probably know, are the precursors to amino acids, which are the building blocks of life. Now, that is, that's just amazing. Wow. It's amazing. For so many years, all of my life, this kind of evidence had not been discovered. Found on a meteorite in a salt crystal, the beginnings of the potential of life, floating around out there, flying around out there in outer space. That's wonderful news, actually. Life happens. <clears throat> well, here's a mystery. Put on your sleuth hats. If you can discover it, well, you'll be doing something nobody else has. I have a question for all of you. What knocked over 100 giant trees in Washington's Olympic National Park? 100 giant trees. Kaboom, went down in the middle of the night. Nobody knows what happened. There was no major weather event in that area. And the story goes like this. During the early hours of the 27th of January, some kind of significant event managed to blow down 110 trees across a large swath of forest on the north shore of Lake Quinault, Washington's Olympic Peninsula. There was no wind recorded at nearby weather stations, nor did radar records from the time show anything more than some high and low pressure systems coming together. A National Weather Service meteorologist says it would have taken winds of 70 to 80 miles per hour to snap trees off in the way that it happened that night. They fell so hard to the ground that it registered as a small earthquake on the seismographs. That is, the force of trees, so many large trees falling, that it looked and felt like a small earthquake. Was it wind? Well, I've already told you. And Serpent's wind records from around the time of the incident didn't show any major winds. And those that were recorded, the minor winds, were blowing in entirely the wrong direction. The trees all fell down in one direction. So what caused 110 trees to blow down in the middle of a forest? That mystery is remaining unsolved to date, and the most recent theory that I caught on today 
was that an approaching weather front resulted in a strong rotor that produced powerful reverse flow. But then again, it's just a theory. No one knows. Wow. And in Denmark, a rare eastern imperial eagle has been spotted in southern Denmark. Wrong place, wrong time. The sightings of this species, which has a wingspan of just under seven feet, are very extremely rare at Danish latitudes. And this eastern imperial eagle is one of the rarest eagles in Europe, with the population of the bird estimated to be only around 500 pairs. So another case of birds turning up where they probably shouldn't be. And here's another mystery. This is weird. It's short. It's brief. I don't know what to make of it. I'm just passing it along. They have discovered a mysterious enriched uranium particle that was detected in the skies over Alaska's Aleutian Islands. Scientists have found a highly unusual particle enriched with uranium over the Aleutian Islands, and the source of the substance, which is typically used in nuclear fuel and bombs, is very unclear. They don't know how it got there. They don't know where it came from. And this is the first time a group of U.S. scientists has detected enriched uranium-233. See if I can say this. Enriched uranium-235 in their 20-year study. What do you think caused that? Where do you think that's from? Who Hmm. knows? But it's not something that we would normally ignore. Well, let's talk about the weather for a minute. The polar vortex just split into a double vortex, and they're saying the cold temperatures for Europe will persist. Now, the polar vortex, as we all know, is that swirl of winds around a low-pressure area in the upper atmosphere over the Arctic has split in two going down one side of the planet and down the other side of the planet. And since this polar vortex tends to be associated with some of the coldest air during the winter, this split, which this article says is more like a temporary separation than a lasting divorce, means that ultra-cold air is on the move. The split in the polar vortex may uh, sound complicated, but they say it has huge consequences for the weather patterns from Canada to Eurasia. They say this is likely to put Western Europe and much of Eurasia into the deep freeze for the rest of February and possibly bring snow along the U.S. east coast, high up, of course, northern latitudes of the east coast. And actually, as I prepared the the, uh, news for tonight, gosh, they're getting a lot of snow and rain all across the planet. A lot of extreme cold temperatures here in the southern United States. Today we had almost 80 degrees so it's hard for me to even think about snow up to my neck. But, of course, it is only mid-February, and uh, in much of the world, it is they're experiencing some very, very harsh weather, very cold weather. And speaking of snow, there was a man in Chicago who asked for a mere 10 volunteers to help him shovel snow for the elderly. You know, he was a good person. He wanted to get out and help the old folks. And he didn't want to do it alone, so... He posted on social media that he needed 10 volunteers. Well, guess how many people showed up? No, not one, not two, not four or five. And, yeah, somebody answered the ad. He didn't get zero volunteers. 120 people showed up 
to help this man shovel the sidewalks in front of the elderly's homes, more than 50 homes. Aww. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? I love to hear stuff. I love that stuff. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And being a tad bit elderly myself, I think it's wonderful because it's pretty tough for me to shovel snow. And when it gets deep, it's really nice when somebody shows up and helps shovel you out. And 120 people. This restores your faith in humanity. This is the the beauty that we all have inside of ourselves. If we can just turn our eyes and our sight away from all the miserable things that that are going on out there and get in touch with our hearts and follow our hearts. This is what turns up. This is what people do. They help each other. And after I read this article, I was thinking about all of the wonderful people in my life, from the people that work at the grocery store to people working in this store or that store or the mailman or people that I incidentally meet occasionally on, from time to time in my little town, and how wonderful they are all, and how wonderful they are, all, all of them are, and how kind and helpful. I watch people at the grocery store help an older person push a cart out, or this or that. And really, how good people's hearts really, really are. It takes something like this to make us think about it, perhaps. But you know all the stuff that we see in the news and all of the corruption and all of the... The things that get us down, this isn't really a reflection of the hearts of humankind. It might be a reflection of our misjudgments and our sometimes our ignorance and and uh, our poor fo- focus and some of the some of the things that we don't take action on that we should. But really, the human heart is a beautiful thing, and uh, people really do want to be kind and they do want to love each other. and And so often, I see that in my life. And this story is kind of an example of what we're all capable of. I mean, I think the volunteer thing is a an amazing resource for all of us to think about. People really do want to help each other deep down inside. So that's it for tonight's news, Ariel. We'll meet back with you again next week. Thanks so much. From my heart to each one of you, I want you to have a beautiful week and much love to each of you. Well, thank you so much, Anastasia. I'm going to be thinking about that story for quite a while here. Thanks for the Starseed News, and we'll see you next week. You're so welcome. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, so uh, let me get um, some microphones open here. Get Lavendar's mic open, and Tricia, you're right there. I am indeed. Okay. Hello. Hi. I love Anastasia's news. I always love listening in on all the great research that she's done. It's amazing. Well, it's stuff, yeah, it's stuff that you won't hear in mm. other places because it, somebody deems it, you know, <laughs> not appropriate or not not important enough for mainstream news. But there's a lot of a lot of great things in the world. She's so she has it, amazing stuff, and and it's great that she ended it on a great story, a good story, you know. Yeah, yeah, she she does it well. So, Lavendar, are you uh, set and ready to go? I'm here. I'm ready. Okay, great. Yeah, I was really glad to see your phone number pop up because uh, we knew that you, your your phone needed some repair, and so I'm glad that <laughs> you got it fixed yeah. in time for the show. <laughs> okay. Well, um, Trisha's ready to go, so take it away. Okay. Well, Trisha, we had you on a couple of weeks ago, and, and you said you wanted to come back, so here you are. So what would you like to cover tonight. Some of the things that I have written down here have to do with Mary Magdalene and, and Sophia. So 
can, can we go in that direction? Oh, we absolutely can. And let me just say, I think you guys have one of the most extraordinary shows. You know, I do a lot of radio and even some TV, and you you three are just so remarkable. And your team, your production team, it's always a pleasure to be on your show because we always have great conversations. So absolutely, you know, you. we can talk about Mary Magdalene, um, of course, the Lost Years of Jesus and the Secret Schools of Initiation, uh, the Divine Mother. In fact, as you know, I'm, I've been working on this um, six-part class for an online university called Sacred You, and it's for adults, so anybody can take it. You don't have to, you know, you know, be in a you know, a six-month course or something. You can selectively choose the courses that you want to study. But I have been deeply immersed the last few weeks in putting together this course, and we've just started recording them, and this uh, class will launch on March 12th. And it's really about um, the the Great Mother, the the Divine Mother, and how for some maybe 230,000 years or maybe up to 800,000 years, this is what the archaeology is showing, Basically, our ancestors honored the creator of the universe as a, a feminine figure because they could observe that in nature it was the female that always gives birth, whether it's a human female or a rhinoceros or a giraffe or a lion. It's always the feminine that um, that is the birth mother. So, of course, logically that would mean that the creator of the universe they held to be the divine feminine. And... Um, so that she, of course, has gone by many different names. You know, in Egypt, she was known as Isis, which is she of 10,000 names and 10,000 faces. And, of course, we know that's not the terrorist group that's really called ISIL. You know, it's she was revered for thousands of years. And in the Greek, she was Sophia, the goddess of wisdom. And, of course, in the Hebrew, she was also Sophia, the goddess of wisdom, the mother god principle. And, of course, she had many, many different expressions. So in this class, I'm actually not only beginning by introducing people to the, the hidden history of the Divine Mother, but also to a lot of her symbols, to a lot of the expressions of her that have come down in many cultures, from the warrior to the teacher, you know, the um, freedom fighter. The We get the Statue of Liberty, of course, from... Nike, which was an aspect of Athena, and of course Athena was the goddess of uh, wisdom in ancient Greece, and um, from the lover to the um, statesman, the civilization maker, the queen, you know, many, many different archetypes, many more than what we have had basically as women for the last you know, 2,000 years. For at least 1,500, we've pretty much been, you know, the mother, the wife, the daughter, we've been the virgin, we've been the whore, you know. Those are kind of, you know, we got to be either identified with Mary the mother, poor little Mary Magdalene, who got turned into a prostitute when she really wasn't one. And, of course, the Catholic Church has come back and said, in 1979, oops, sorry, we made a mistake. She really wasn't a prostitute. <laughs> but you know, it was a little late, you know, 1,800 years later. <laughs> so um, so um, the, this course is, anyway, I'm very excited about the course. We actually recorded 
the first of six classes yesterday. We recorded the second of six classes today, and I'll record two of the classes. Three of the classes are all about Mary Magdalene and the search for the Holy Grail and the secret teachings of Mary Magdalene. Most people don't know she had over 250 sayings that the Gnostics, the early Christians, recorded from her teachings because, of course, she was the one that was asked by Jesus to um, teach the inner wisdom as Peter was, you know, to be the head of the the outer church, the exoteric church. She was to be the head of the inner church. And, of course, most of us don't know that this is actually one of the things that actually did happen was that, you know, in the years following the crucifixion, there were actually groups of early Christians or followers of Jesus who met about every three years um, in this estate on an island in the Mediterranean. It was a state that was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. And they would come and spend like a month in a conclave there. And usually in the mornings they would get up and Mary Magdalene would do a teaching and then they'd have you know, lunch and then the whole afternoon would be other people discussing, sharing their ideas, their thoughts, their wisdom, their understanding. So that you know, there was always a the original um, disciple, as Jesus called Mary Magdalene, the disciple of disciples or the apostle of apostles. There was always her opportunity to share, and then there was um, the the thoughts and ideas of others about uh, the teachings of of the Christ ministry. So anyway, it, it's a fascinating course, and I'm obviously, you know, very deeply, profoundly into it. And as you know, I have a book called Return of the Divine Sophia, uh, Healing the Earth Through the Lost Wisdom Teachings of Jesus, Isis, and Mary Magdalene. That book is out. You can, you know, get it on Amazon or get it through my website, com, or you can get it in a bookstore, you know, any of those, because it's published by, of course, a, a wonderful publisher, my publisher, Inner Traditions. And um, so, yeah, have, have you, I, I know you've been very busy with your own projects, but have you had a chance to see the Sophia book? No, I ha- you, you didn't send it to me. I don't have a copy of it. I think that we have to correct that. I think we should get in touch with my publicist at, at Inner Traditions and, and request that. I, I'm not sure that they really know about you as a radio show, but... And they do. They know because they send me other, they send me other um, clients all the time. Yeah, they know about me. Yeah, so we have to get them to send you a book. You you would love the book. Um, it, you know, have you yourself had experiences with the divine feminine, with the divine mother? Uh, not, not in the way that 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 is uh, talk talkable right now. <laughs> I I'm not ready to reveal my my. Uh, my history with that. Not well, I have time. to tell you, for me, you know, I was, my dad was Baptist, my mom was Methodist, and I was raised Episcopalian. <laughs> we actually went around to a lot of different churches and tried them out, and and we settled on a beautiful little Episcopalian parish when I was about maybe 11, 10 or 11, and I was uh, confirmed there when I was 13. And personally, I loved the Episcopal Church because I loved the, the beauty and the incense and the wafing and the the rituals and all that, the genuflexing and the kneeling, but it was all optional. In other words, 
no one was going to frown at you if you didn't do it. I think of it as Catholic light, you know, without the the guilt or the nuns rulers. But it was um, a lot of the beauty and the the majesty and the sanctity of um, what is really moving in you know Christian Christianity. And um, so I wasn't wasn't aware of the divine feminine or the divine mother and my whole concept of god was of course beyond gender however i think when i first encountered the divine feminine i was about 27 years old and it took me by such surprise that it caused me to actually really go in and look at a lot of my subconscious assumptions uh, assumptions, obviously, I had gotten just through osmosis in, you know, society and going into the church and so forth. And, you know, it was like basic things like Eve was to blame for the suffering of humanity, which, you know, hey, you know, I don't even know if that story is true, but even if it was true, she ate the apple and so did Adam. So, you know, they both you know, are are equally guilty from the point of view if there's guilt to even be had in that story. I didn't really realize I like everyone else, I sort of assumed Mary Magdalene was a fallen woman and, you know, all of that um story that's been spun around her. And that's really not true. And of course the way that story got started was in five sixty one A.D., Pope Gregory I, in his 33rd homily, actually said to the cardinals, my brothers, you know, where did she get the expensive spikenard that she used to anoint, you know, our Lord's uh, feet and head? Clearly, she must have gotten it from forbidden acts of the flesh. And so it was pure conjure. I mean, it was like he pulled a complete, you know, story out of the hat because how could she have gotten the money for the Spartan art? She must have been a prostitute. And so this is how the whole crazy story actually began. And it became, of course, uh, something that was spun to really uh, undermine this deeper story about the sacred marriage And the sacred marriage is one of the things that Jesus teaches when he talks about the bride and the bridegroom. And he talks about when you make the two eyes into one and the inner into the outer and the outer into the inner and the male into the female and the female into the male, then you shall see the kingdom of heaven. That's from the Gospel of Thomas. And, of course, this is spiritual technology that he was teaching people about how to balance the left and the right hemispheres of the brain, the two eyes, into one, to awaken the third eye, to awaken your inner gifts. And by awakening your inner gifts, then you do see the kingdom of heaven. And, of course, the left and right sides are generally thought of as being male and female. You know, the left side of the brain is the masculine, logical, and it controls the right side of the body. And then, you know, the right side of the brain that controls the left side of the body is normally thought to be the intuitive, the emotional, the the part that sings instead of, you know, 
does numbers. So, you know, clearly this spiritual technology, you know, um, was known probably by the great masters and sages of the East, not to mention the masters and sages of Egypt and perhaps even of the Greek mystery schools. And Jesus was really an initiate of um, many different traditions, the Essene tradition, the Druid tradition, the Brahmin tradition in India, the Hindu tradition, the Buddhist tradition where he lived in Rajagira with the Buddhist for six years and was accepted as the second Buddha that the first Buddha had predicted some 500 years earlier would come. And then, of course, in his seven years of training in the Egyptian mystery schools. And I talk about Jesus and these mystery schools and the evidence for this, you know, missing 30 years in my book called Jesus, and it's got a long subtitle, The Explosive Story of the 30 Lost Years in Ancient Mystery Religions. It's a really long title, but it does say what it is. It is an incredibly exciting story of those 30 missing years, and it honors all the traditions, and it is profoundly honoring to him and, uh, of course, to what he was trying to teach. And I think that what happened is, of course, there were a lot of his disciples or apostles were (coughs) coming out of, um, you know, the Jewish teachings, which, of course, as you know, had the Pharisees, who did believe in reincarnation, the Sadducees that were basically materialistic, and then the Essenes who really had a lot of the inner teachings and the inner wisdom. But if you weren't raised in that inner wisdom, a lot of Jesus' parables remain very obscure. You know, it's like, what does it mean? You know, he's trying to talk in the language that an everyday person would understand, about deep and profound spiritual concepts. And so that book, as you may know, took me three years to write. I had 100 pages of back matter, over 1,200 footnotes, appendixes, bibliographies. I mean, I really, I was in the cave for three years with the masters and with Jesus in my house, you know, um, day and night for, for three years really in the writing of that book. And that book actually has 144 initiatory codes so that when people read the book, they themselves become highly activated. And really, you know, when that book was, I just started touring with that book. And I was back home between trips, and I wound up having a a very profound experience um, where I actually was taking a bubble bath, and I actually have a fireplace, believe it or not, in my bathroom, which is the coolest possible thing about my house. And I had this profound experience where I lit candles and I was meditating, and suddenly this divine feminine energy descended over me. And she was like this pearl, as they say, the pearl of great price. And she was opalescent white, and she was uh, kind of a like that St. Germain violet flame and also kind of a smoky gray, like hidden. And she was surrounded by like 10,000 petals. They almost look like sunflower petals. And I realized that they were actually the great solar lords that had incarnated through all of the many, many, many centuries, probably not just on this planet, but on other planets that need, you know, um, to have 
spiritual avatars or way showers appear. And that what they had been seeking was her, the pearl of great price. They were seeking this essence of this hidden divine mother behind the visible universe. And she descended and she said, I'm going to make you a, a vessel or a channel of my energy. And I, and she called herself Sophia. And I was like, uh, well, uh, okay, uh, oh, you know, cool, okay. But my brain was really on the solar lords because I had spent three years really with these male masters and avatars and uh, profound beings. And um, I had so much respect for them and for the sacrifice that they had made through the millennia. And so when, um, you know, she she did that, I was like, okay. But then, you know, it was like, hey, I'm too hot. I have to get out of the bathtub. The next day I took another bath. It was obviously winter. And uh, same thing happened. And so it was like she was really trying to get the message around to me. But I, you know, I was like, Sophia, okay, amazing, cool, I understand, but I don't really, you know, okay, I'm, I have, I'm, I'm on this other wavelength. So sure enough, when I went to write the book about the Divine Mother, I, you know, usually I'm very, very clear about my title. It, it comes in, it's like downloaded. In this case, I scrambled. I must have called that book five different things in the process of writing it. And finally, at the very end, when the to- the book was totally done and it was literally about to go get typeset and printed, my publisher said to me, well, what is the book really about? And I said, well, it's really about the return of the Divine Mother, you know, and how we need her to bring healing and balance back to the world. And, of course, she was exemplified by you know, Isis and by Mary Magdalene, by Mary, and by, um, of course, the teachings of Jesus. And she said, well, let's call it that, <laughs> you know. And I said, oh, the, oh, Return of the Divine Sophia. And I was like the last one to know, Lavendar. I was like, oh, now I get it. Three years later, <laughs> after this divine mother presence had come in and called herself Sophia, I was like, duh, oh, Return of the Divine Sophia. So that, of course, was uh, my third book. So, what, what year did you do that? What year was that happening for you? Um, well, I think it has to be about uh, three years ago because I have a fourth book out that came out in the fall, you know, The Angelic Origins of the Soul. And these books seem like they take about a year or more to write, and then they take another year to get out. So probably Return of the Divine Sophia came out in probably March of 2015, I imagine. Yeah, okay. Something like that. So, yeah, that's – and, of course, when I was writing that book, she was coming in all the time. In fact, as you will see when you get the book, each of my books has about 100 black and white illustrations, and – I've done a lot of them, although I was lucky enough to have a, a very uh, beautiful artist friend of mine who worked with me on some of the illustrations for the Jesus book and the Sophia book, um, my girlfriend, Sylvia Lorenz. But she left the planet about two years ago, and I deeply miss her. And she was so gifted and such a high consciousness you know, gift to me. 
and she was very, you know, hidden in the wilds of Arkansas. She had like, uh, she'd rescued 10 white wolves. She slept with a 50-pound panther um, or jaguar in her bed. You know, she'd rescued these big animals. She was just an amazing person. I love her so much. And um, so in the in the Sophia book, when I was drawing them, uh, the god, the various expressions of the, the goddess, it would l- literally be like that archetype of that divine energy would come and sit in my body while I was doing the drawings. And after, you know, four or five or six hours when I was done with the drawings, you know, that archetype would like literally move off. And it would be like them giving me their blessing for the way I portrayed them. And I'm a, I'm a, I mean, there's a lot better artists than me out there. I'm, I'm pretty good, but not next to someone who's really professional. And so it was really a great benediction for me to experience the presence of so many aspects of the Divine Mother. Wow. You've had quite an experience with, with all of this. Um, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the integration of the polarities uh, that Sophia brought to us to understand how we're to deal with the men in our lives and how we're to deal with relationships. Can you talk a little bit about that and what she had to say about it? Well, first off, we need the men. You know, the the goddess loves her divine consort, of course, and the world would be a very boring place without the wonderful men and the wonderful women in it. And just as if, you know, just like right now and for the last two or 3,000 years, we've really had an imbalance going on with the patriarchy, uh, which has created a lot of war and aggression and territorialism and a class society, um, uh, you know, it's created a lot of prejudice and suppression of, of knowledge, of women, of minorities, of all of those things, all that can be laid at the feet of the patriarchy, which is, you know, in its negative form, it's aggressive, it's territorial, it's um, um, egotistical, it's narcissistic, it's uh, um, violent and brutal and abusive and all those things. In the positive form, though, the the, the masculine is like the Christ. It's, it's um, an illuminated man. Is someone who is wise and kind and patient and courageous, uh, who is a leader, who brings people together and gives them a vision and has the courage to act. And we need that. And, of course, all people have the masculine and the feminine within them. All of us have um, traits uh, of the positive masculine and the positive feminine. And, of course, there's a negative feminine as well. I mean, we should say that. I talk about this in the Sophia book. It's sort of like these four paths, and you put the negative aspects on the outside because they're really not you know, on the middle path, and then you put the positive aspects on the inside. And the the path of mastery is really to bring the positive masculine and the positive feminine within ourselves together in unity so that we are um, using both uh, all of our gifts, both sides of us. And, you know, Shanti Gawain, I don't know if you remember her, but she's a wonderful teacher 
who in the early days of the, let's say, New Age movement wrote a book called Living in the Light, another one called, I think, Creative Visualization. And she really describes um, the masculine and feminine in a simple, easy-to-understand way. She, She talks about the feminine part of us as being the part that's really connected to spirit. You know, this would be the queen who's like sitting on her plush pillow meditating and uh, connected with the divine and receiving all sorts of visions and ideas and um, insights and wisdom. But if she can't employ, come out of her meditation and call to her her best night and put those plans into action, you know, if she's too yin and not enough yang, then all those brilliant ideas don't get executed in the world. They don't get implemented. On the other hand, if we have too much of the masculine without being connected to the feminine, what we have is basically a warrior that wants to go out and do, 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 but without wise direction, you know. So he becomes kind of randomly um, uh, violent or ineffective, effective sometimes, but, you know, he can, you know, basically be the bully out there being a warrior, but without um, clear direction. And so they need each other. You know, the feminine needs the masculine. The masculine needs the feminine. So, of course, in romances, we look for it outside of ourselves. You know, we want to fall in love with our soulmate or our twin flame. And, you know, nothing wrong with that idea of finding a wonderful companion or partner to meet and love and cherish and go through life with. But um, first, I think we really have to work on balancing ourselves. Because the path of mastery, you know, you can't just assign the things you can't do to somebody else. I'll just be the passive, receptive feminine over here, and you be the successful masculine. And, of course, that's what happened for many centuries in the patriarchy. The male was such so much of the alpha, the woman became the, you know, hidden one that cooked his meals and raised his kids and cleaned his house and did his shopping and his laundry and got no credit for it. And so, of course, that ultimately didn't work. So when we wound up kind of going into the time where women finally could really get jobs and so forth, and, you know, kind of the women's lib movement started, there was a a really strong reaction from a lot of women that were like, you know, I'm done with that. I don't really want to do that role. I think I just want to go into the workplace and make money and, you know, have my own place, my own apartment, and not have a man tell me what to do and keep him under my, keep you know, be kept under his thumb. But then, of course, it was like a pendulum swinging. You know, it went so far to one side that then you had all these women that were angry when men even, you know, opened the door for them or pulled out a chair, you know, or, or were gentlemen, you know, which, of course, those men were just trying to be gracious. So they, you know, they should have gotten a thank you instead of a, 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 a glare, So I think we're moving, as women, back into a place of better balance and um, where, you know, we want to be mothers. We want to be companions or wives or girlfriends, but we also want to have a career and feel like we have done something, whether we're a teacher or, uh, you know, an artist or a radio show host or an engineer or a chemist or a scientist or a 
uh, astronaut or a, a athlete. We want to feel like we we are fulfilling our own dreams as well as helping the man to fulfill his. And I think that's the only way it can work. And of course, conversely, the men, fortunately, many of them have become more supportive instead of it everything revolving around them. You know, they're looking, they're they're being better partners. They're being better fathers. They're being better husbands. You know, they're saying, you know, sometimes they move because of the wife's job, sometimes because of their job. But it's more a conversation of how we're in this together, how can we do this together so we're both satisfied and we're both happy. And, you know, I think because each person is working out their own yin and yang, male and female balance, and they're in process because the whole the whole of culture is changing, the whole society is changing, and each person someplace on that continuum of being too yang or too yin or someplace in the middle. And because of that, when you marry somebody, you know, maybe initially you're just playing out the normal dominant yang and submissive yin roles, but as the two people mature as individuals in life, you know, she may uh, grow to... uh, want to express more of herself and then the marriage doesn't fit it's like a a pair of shoes that's just too tight or he on the other hand might become spiritual and uh, emotional and want to begin to express his artistic or creative side and she may be like hey you can't quit the nine to five job you're supposed to be the money provider how dare you think about becoming yin (laughs) your job is to be the breadwinner so, I mean, I think that we as a society over the last 50 years have been in a huge transition, and this is one of the reasons we've had a higher divorce rate than our parents and our grandparents. Because well, Tricia, we were... let me ask you, um, in, in the circles that you run in with metaphysicians and psychics and healers, what are you hearing about this latest movement that the women are doing called Time's Up? What have you heard in your circles? Well, I know a little more about the Me Too movement than the Time's Up. I think Time's Up is a British movement, isn't it? Uh, no, not really. It's here in the United States um, where they're, you know, wanting to get better pay for women in different jobs. Well, you know, you may know more about it than I do, but I, I definitely think that those two movements are uh, the time has come for them. Uh, basically, you know, the Me Too movement, I think, has been primarily focused on taking a look at how the exploitation of women and the abuse of women, sexual abuse, uh, uh, has gone on and on and on and on in all sorts of places, but particularly the workplace. And it's not just the high-powered Hollywood people or the political arenas. It's, you know, the, the girl next door in the coffee shop, you know, it's it's... It's gone on across the board. And I think that a lot of this is just this old paradigm. Uh, When I was growing up, I mean, it was very clear to me that the boys could fool around, but if the girls fooled around, they got a terrible reputation. So I very quickly got the message by the time I was in junior high school or high school that it was a, um, a double standard. Boys could stay out till 12 o'clock, Girls had to be in by 10 or 11 o'clock curfews. And, um, you know, it was it was because 
we had come out of really the Victorian era, the Edwardian era, the Puritan eras, all these eras where men, um, you know, for about 3,500 years, have worked very hard to control women's bodies because they they wanted the line of succession and property ownership to pass through them. And so they could mess around with anybody they wanted. But if the women messed around, then they couldn't be sure that the child would be theirs, and then how could they, you know, create a male-dominant uh, ownership uh, claim? I mean, for many, many, many thousands of years, land ownership was passed through the feminine line because everyone could see who gave birth. And, you know, so for sure they witnessed the birth, the the midwife or the doctor or whoever. But um, we've had, you know, this double standard going on for a really super long time, and there's been a huge price that women have paid for it. And so even today there's like two messages that have been given out. You watch television and there are hot, sexy girls wearing skimpy clothes with long legs and, you know, cleavage. It's like be sexy, be hot, you know. The makeup ads, the eyelash ads, I mean, you know, it just goes on and on. And so girls think, oh, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. Even in the music industry, that's what I'm supposed to do is be a a bad girl. And yet if a guy actually steps up and hits on a girl – Believing she's a girl that's willing to play around, he he can get slapped down because the other standard is still running in the background, which is if she plays around too much, then she's going to be considered a loose woman. So I think that, you know, we're having to really just reevaluate how we got here, which was primarily religion, you know, and um, the rise of the patriarchy and that imbalance that it created in the world. And then we're having to figure out, you know, how women can set healthy boundaries and not give mixed signals to men, and also how men have to learn that it is not, you know, their God-given right to be able to, you know, hit women on the bottom or rub their shoulders or, you know, touch their um you know, erogenous zones of their body unless they're in a relationship where they've decided mutually to, you know, be involved. You know, I noticed the other day that Saudi Arabia is now allowing the women to drive cars. (laughs) And I went, whoa, I just can't imagine living in a country and not being able to drive a car. Well, it's, it's really been all about control of the women. And, I mean, at a certain level... I think that this is maybe a crazy way of analyzing it, but maybe it's true. You know, maybe that there has been a deep fear. If you think about it, we all come from women. If there were no women in the world, nothing would be born if there were no females. So we all come from gestating in our mother's womb. And for men, at least straight men, heterosexual men, they spend most of their life trying to get back into the girl's private parts for sexual reasons, okay? And so it's like they've already given women a certain visceral power over them. And so I think that they have tried to take away the power by demeaning women, shaming women, debasing women, making women cover cover themselves up, 
rather than them just come face to face with the fact that they, you know, are dealing with high levels of testosterone, and those testosterone is like running a high octane car, you know, with you know, uh, 800 uh, horsepower or 1,000 horsepower, whatever. They're a high level, you know, like 12 galloping horses that want to gallop uh, the chariot ahead of you. So the men, of course, are having to figure out how to reroute that energy to something positive, creative, you know, that, that kundalini life force energy that can be used for sex, yes, in the second chakra, but it can be used for love in the heart chakra. It can be used for creative self-expression in the throat chakra. It can be used for spiritual enlightenment in the, in the third eye and the crown chakra. So there's a lot of ways to use our, crea- our, our, our creative energy. You can use for creative projects to help the world. But most men, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of men, let's just say, the energy stuck in the lower three chakras. So it's about money and power and ego, money, power, ego, money, power, ego. And, you know, that's, you know, they need to learn to pull the energy up. And so when they have that the, that team of 12 wild horses, they want to do something with it. It's like a burning flame that they're trying to quench well, just because, uh, you know, there's a girl standing next to them doesn't mean it's her job to quench that flame. The man actually has to learn how to rechannel the energy in a positive manner and to honor the women's boundaries. And I think it's just incredibly important that it's happening, the movement in our day and age. But you and I both know it's been going on for, you know, many, many centuries, if not millennia. Yep, right. Well, I'm so glad that you decided to come back on and and talk to us again because everyone just loved you being on the show the last time you were on. And I'm looking at the time, so I'd like to pass you over to my co-host, Arielle, at this time. And will you will you uh, be available to take maybe a couple of questions from people that want to call in? Yeah, my pleasure. I'm I'm actually driving down to see my 93 year old mom tonight. She's um she's I think come down with one of these flus and quite concerned about her so I'm going to go tuck her in once we get off the air but I'm I'm happy to speak with Ariel and thank you so much for having me it's always just such a joy we'll tell inner traditions to send me copies of all your books I really would love to see all of them can you email me or text me your address I will I'll I'll, I'll email you that would be great, and then I'll try to contact them uh, sometime this week. I'll send a, a, uh, an email out to, to Ashley, but be sure and put the radio show and all that stuff, and I'm sure they'll know. Ashley's my publicist, though, okay? Okay, okay, great. Thank you so much, so, honey. anytime you want to come on and announce anything, be sure to let us know, even if it's just for five minutes, that you have something important that you want to get out to everyone, okay? Well, thank you. You know, people can go to my website, TrishaMcCannonSpeaks.com, and they'll see my books uh, under the shopping, and I've bought 30 DVDs, and I have a whole mystery school, an online mystery school that you can actually take the classes, and I send them to you. And um, I have a lot of things. I haven't updated for these upcoming events, the one in in March about the Divine Sophia, and I haven't updated for the – I have a – the first weekend in April here in Atlanta, William Henry and I are doing a Lost Civilizations uh, intensive uh, two-day workshop. And um, then I think the second weekend I'm at the, in Eureka Springs at the UFO conference there in Arkansas. That's a, a famous UFO conference. 
And then the very first weekend in May, I think I'm going to be in Denver and um, Boulder, uh, again, uh, teaching on Atlantis, uh, teaching on uh, the star seeds and the crystal children and all of that. So maybe we can do a show later in, in, in maybe mid-March when this, sh- this uh, program is just launching, and, and we'll talk about it then. Yeah, okay. So back to you, Ariel. Thank you so much, sweetie. Okay, thank you. Okay, well, Tricia, it's always such a pleasure to hear you speak. And um, at this time, if anyone has a question or a comment for Tricia, if you're already on the switchboard, all you need to do is press 1 so we know you have a question. And if you're listening on the computer, then just pick up the phone and dial 917-889-8292, and then once you're in, press 1. So while we're um, waiting to see if anyone has a question for you, um, could you talk a little bit more about the 30 lost years and um, some of the research that you've done and where it has led you? Well, I must tell you, for me, it's been a very profound initiation myself. I think like a lot of people um, who've always really loved Jesus and really felt drawn to the beauty and the majesty and the wisdom and the love that he brought into the world, um, I suspected that there was a whole bunch of stuff we didn't know about him, that there was a lot of stuff that had been left out of the Bible. And, of course, I kept asking, well, you know, where are his secret teachings? I was sure that there was a lot more than what, you know, we had presented to us in the New Testament, although there's some beautiful things in the New Testament. And, um, of course, once they found the Nag Hammadi text and the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 and 1945, um, then there was a whole, um, you know, translation team that uh, the Vatican brought together. And I think when they started discovering that a lot of the ways that we had interpreted Christianity or been taught Christianity over the last, you know, several centuries was not true to what Jesus or what the Gnostics, the early Christians, were uh, uh, what he had actually taught. Uh, there was sort of a stunned silence. And so for about 50 years, these translations of the Nagamai Text and Dead Sea Scrolls were not released. And so eventually there was a woman, who, an older woman, who had been involved with um uh, helping to give money to fund this project. And she went in with a little camera and took pictures of all the scrolls and she released them so that other uh, biblical researchers could really study the Aramaic. And because of this, um, they were, you know, finally came out to the public, I think around maybe the first book was maybe 1975. Elaine Pagels was one, uh, Michael Eisenman, there were many, you know, a half dozen who really wrote very um, eloquent, intelligent research books. And then, of course, uh, wonderful people like the Jesuit priest, Yves Leloup, um, really, he's written quite a few books, uh, books on the Gospel of Thomas and on uh, Mary Magdalene and the Sacred Marriage and so forth. But uh, 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 I think that was a very profound priest, profound insight. And so 
sort of this is how we got the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Mary, all of these books. I think there are over like 300 uh, Gospels, dialogues with the Savior and so forth, that finally, you know, they're slowly coming to light. And so from this, we, of course, have begun to discover a lot more of the depth and breadth of of Jesus' teachings. And um, my book... Uh, Jesus, the Explosive Story of the Thirty Lost Years in the Ancient Mystery Religions, that book actually um, chronicles, it's divided into five sections, and the first section is only two chapters, and it's kind of like what are the mysteries and what's the evidence Jesus was involved in the great mystery schools. And in the New Testament, it actually uses the word mysteria or mysteries some 21 times in the New Testament in conjunction with Jesus' teachings. It even says the Master taught all things in a mystery. And, of course, Judea was totally surrounded by the mystery schools, Egypt to the south, um, Greece and the Lucian mystery schools, uh, and the Orphic mystery schools, um, to the northeast, uh, the Druids were all through France and Poland, Germany, and of course the Celtic Isles and Ireland and Scotland. And the Druids had over sixty thousand students and over six thousand uh, schools or universities. I mean, they were incredible. It was twenty years for a full course of study there. And then, of course, you had um, the. If you go further to the east, you had the Persian mystery schools the Mithran and the Zoroastrian schools and the Sarmang Society, which is so amazing. And um, then if you continue to the east, you wind up, of course, with, the, with India and the ancient lineages of the Brahmins. And then, of course, Buddha had come in around 500 B.C. So you had the Buddhists. So, I mean, he incarnated at a time where a lot of great um, wisdom keepers had come in between about – Five or 600 B.C. and about 350 B.C. I mean, we're talking about, you know, Pythagoras, Plato, Socrates, uh, Democrates, Lao Tzu, Confucius, Buddha. I mean, it was just a plethora of them. And so it was. There, these mystery schools were, had been going for some 4,000 years before Jesus was born, and they continued into Neoplatonic times until around 400 A.D., when eventually Pope Theodosius issued the Theodosian decrees and basically closed all the great temples or converted them to Christian temples and, um, you know, basically incited the mobs with uh, Clement of Alexandria to uh, murder some of the highest-level initiates in the Alexandrian school of Egypt. And and this is a place where Neoplatonism, which is basically Platonism after Jesus, it really sought to combine the wisdom of Jesus' teachings with the wisdom of the great mystery schools to, to because there really was no separation. They really worked together. But that really didn't make the Roman Empire happy. And so the Roman Empire, you know, basically uh, took out some of the top players uh, in the uh, Neoplatonic schools and, you know, issued these edicts so that uh, they kind of incited people who were really kind of uneducated hillbilly types to to produce, create murders in the name of the church. 
So, um, you know, it was quite a process of writing this book and doing, going back in the history, discovering actually all this hidden history most of us don't know, but it is out there. And to put it all together in one place so that someone could really read um, the the story and sort of go through their own initiation, if you will, into the great mysteries, uh, although, you know, you're obviously not, physically going into the caves with the masters, but the vibration in the book is such that it's like you literally are on this initiatic journey with him. So, you know, the part one is about the mysteries and how they taught and what they were based on and how they basically taught one creator behind all things, that we are all immortal souls, that this life that we're in is uh, like earth school and that we, um, you know, our, our purpose ultimately is to, uh, you know, become aware of the divine spark that lives within us and all things. And in part two, I talk about when was he really born? Was it really December 25th? And what does it mean astrologically? And also we get into, you know, the, um, the what the Persian magi and who were they and, um, you know, the priest astronomers, and what did it all mean? And then we move into the time when the family fled to Alexandria and the seven years they spent when he was a child, and then them coming back to Galilee and him studying with the Essenes from 8 to about 12 or 13, and that's after he bar-mitzvahed at 12, and that's that story in the New Testament where he goes to the temple and, um, you know, he amazes the rabbis. And then he was sent to England and spent a couple of years with the Druids. But he was so advanced that they sent him on to India. And um, he, there he studied from the yogis and the sages, and, you know, he learned how to do his, his healing miracles and so forth. And they say, there are many reports of him in India, that he began to teach his own thing, and this probably would have been about the age of about 19 or 20. And he taught everybody equally, you know. Uh, it didn't matter if you were a merchant, a peasant, a farmer, a royal, a, a military person. And there was a very strong class society at that time. Uh, but he taught them all equally. And this was really kind of unacceptable to the power elite in, in, in India um, because, you know, a lot of the lower classes were not really allowed to ever hear scripture. And he had about 3,000 to 5,000 people very quickly. And uh, so they, uh, the stories that I have are that they sent assassins to kill him. And uh, the merchant, the farmers and the peasants warned him. And he fled to Rajagira, where he lived with the Buddhists for six years. And, of course, he learned to speak and read Pali, which is the language there. And so he was able to uh, uh, really uh, study the Buddha's writings firsthand. And he could have just stayed there. But, you know, the Magi came and got him, and, you know, he knew he had a mission, so they took him across the Towert Pass uh, going back towards, you know, Europe, and uh, and they initiated him in the star mysteries of the Saramang Society, which are really the, the mysteries of understanding the great cycles of time and how the change of the ages proceeds and how um, there's like a great avatar that comes at the beginning of every age. 
And, of course, he was the great avatar, the great aeon, as they called him, for our age. And then coming back to Judea, he spent some time in Galilee with his friends. And then I think he briefly went back to the Celtic lands, maybe for, you know, six months or a season. And then he was in Egypt for seven years. So his ministry didn't really start at 30 uh, as we think it did, it started probably, it was probably at the earliest, 37, could have been 38, 39. And there's several things in the Old Test- the New Testament that tell us this. The reason we think 30 is because Luke, who was didn't know Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke was actually a disciple of Paul's. And, of course, Paul was Saul, the tax bearer, who didn't know Jesus either. He just met him on the road to Damascus where he went blind and then he had an epiphany. And so uh, Luke actually says that um, he appeared to be a man around 30. Of course, he never knew him and neither did Paul, didn't, you know, didn't see him. And he could have appeared to be a man around 30, especially if he meditated. But, um, but you know, in a lot of the early church fathers, Tertullian, for example, said, you know, of course he was a man of, of older age, at least in his 40s. And by saying he was a younger man, they robbed him of the, uh, you know, the sagely aspect that, you know, elders have. Um, but there's a whole uh, story in the Gospel of John where Jesus is talking to some Jews, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they look at him and said, man, are you crazy, you know? You know, you're not yet 50. Well, you know, you might say that to a 40 or 45 or 47-year-old, but you wouldn't say that to a 30-year-old. So, um, you know, this is, again, a, a, another misperception, I think, that's been put forward in order to just sort of say he was a carpenter that stayed home and pounded a bunch of nails and then became enlightened and did his mission. I don't think that that was really the case at all. I'm sure he probably was a pretty good carpenter, but, um, you know, he he uh, had a bigger mission. So, hmm. so um I mean, I was always taught that that he died at 33. So yeah, are you that saying was, that that's no, that's not right. The reason they said that, see, all that's encoded. Like in the mystery schools, there's 33 steps to initiation, and there's 33 spiritual powers or siddhas that you can acquire, and the 33 steps are connected with the 32 vertebrae plus the 33rd is the atlas, which the skull sits on at the top of the spine. So all of that is Masonic. I mean, the Masons, you know, there were Masons in, um, I'm sure, in the Hebrew lands and also in Egypt. There was a whole Masonic society. And, you know, the Masons, it's not just carving and building like physical carpenters and engineers and so forth. These are actually... You know, at the higher level, what the Freemasons are about is the inner temple, the inner adium. It's building the inner temple of light, building your spiritual bodies to access more of your spiritual powers or siddhas, like clairvoyance, clairaudience, clairsentience, invisibility, levitation, telekinetic abilities. These are some of those 33 siddhas or powers that can be acquired. So it's a big... Interesting. uh, yeah, I know it's a big. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So it's 
Right. The mysteries are great. And the truth is that anyone can learn the mysteries. I mean, all you have need is a, a love of truth, you know, and a, and, a, and a hunger in your soul, you know. But the mysteries are very honoring to everyone and everything, to the masculine and to the feminine, because they understand that mastery cannot be had with one or the other. You have to have them both. And this is the sacred marriage again. So, I mean, it's not just looking for the soulmate outside yourself. Uh, There are so many levels to the sacred marriage. And I think in each of my books, I myself have moved to a deeper level in my own understanding of the sacred marriage. You know, initially it was very much about the, you know, the masculine and feminine, the inner marriage within us that leads us to wholeness. So that's a very big, you know, aha. And then in my last book, The Angelic Origins of the Soul, um, I I came up on a whole other level of the sacred marriage. And, of course, in the book about um, Sophia, it was about the sacred marriage of the male and the female, meaning, you know, Jesus and Mary Magdalene and, you know, the, the Divine Mother and the Divine Father and the you know, the balance, the universe, the yin and the yang, all that. So that was the second level. But the third level, the angelic orders of the soul, there was a secret teaching within the Gnostics. Uh, I'm sure Jesus taught it about the angelic twin. And this is the part of us that remains in the higher world. In other words, who you are is already an enlightened angelic being who every one of our listeners out there, each one of us has the biggest part of us already exists up there in the fifth dimension as a a very beautiful being of light. And we extend a portion of ourselves, maybe 10%, 20%, 30%, to come down here to this planet to have a earth school experience. And, of course, we come down here, most of us, with amnesia and one hand tied behind our back. So, you know, we're, we're... like, who am I again, and what am I supposed to be doing? I don't know. Would somebody please give me the roadmap? I don't know. But then at the end of every lifetime, you know, we go through the tunnel of light, and we wind up standing before this incredible being of light that most people think of as Jesus or Mary or an angel or something. But that actually is our higher self. And what the higher self asks is basically, how did we do what 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 did you what ex, did you gain in your experience? What wisdom have you brought back from the travail you've gone through on planet Earth? And of course, then you have the life review. And if the person's going to be sent back, the person who realizes that they you know made a lot of crummy decisions is standing there feeling pretty bad about the horrible things that they did. And, of course, the being of light floods them with unconditional love. And basically they wind up judging themselves. And then they come back and they really try to live a a better life. And many times it really has totally changed people's lives completely because their perspectives changed, their priorities changed, and they realized it wasn't about, you know, money, power, sex, greed, all that. It was about, you know, what good can we do while we're down here? What difference can we make? What wisdom can we learn? How much love can we give? So that's 
that's a whole nother level of the sacred marriage, which is the marriage of the of the mortal self, the ego personality, with this higher self that we really are. That we're living into that instead of wandering around here down here like a chicken with our head cut off, you know? Right. <laughs> which is how a lot of us feel in some days. It's like, really, I mean, when I get up in the morning, obviously I am traveling in the inner worlds because whenever I muscle test whether I'm Trisha McCann, and I, I'm, I'm not until about 15 minutes into, you know, getting up, showering, and feeding the cats, and then I get enough back in my body that I'm like, now who am I? Oh, I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a girl. Yeah. My name's Trisha McCannon. I, I write books. Yeah. I do clairvoyant work. I heal people. All right, that's that's my identity this time, you know. So, so there's a lot right. more to all of us than what meets the eye. We are far more magnificent than we know. But the whole question, I think, is the one that Gandalf asked, you know, Frodo, you know, what do we do with the time that is allotted to us? How can we make the best use of this time so that we, we grow the most and so that when we do go back into the higher worlds and our higher self says, what did you bring me? We say, wow, let me tell you, you know, mm-hmm. all the beautiful people I touched, all the good that I did, how I made a difference in the world, like you girls are doing with your beautiful radio show. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. It's well, true. It's such, a, it's such a pleasure to um, to have you on the show and um I, I just I love the concepts of your of your books and uh, just keep up the, keep up the good work um, and I know that Thanks. I know that you want to kind of get on the road here so we're going to wrap it up um, just before I do that though I want to repeat that your website is trishamccannonspeaks.com and Trisha is T R I C I A McCannon just like you would think it sounds. Um, and when you want to come back, just you know, give Lavendar a call, and uh, we'll get together again. Thank you so much. Maybe in about a month when my Mary Magdalene course launches, that'd be really fun. Thank you so much, girls. Right. I really, really loved it. It was so fun. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure, Tricia. So you take care of your mom and uh, keep doing the good work. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay. Much love, honey. You're welcome. Bye. Uh, and to you as well. Good night. And from all of us here at Starseed Radio Academy, we thank you for listening, and we will be back next week. And until then, find something to be grateful for every day in every way. Good night, everyone. been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com.